Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Nick Sherrod of Label Sessions talks to Dave Chase. Dave is a music advisor and marketing leader extraordinaire, with time spent in music labels across Universal, EMI, and Mute Records, for perhaps most notably leading the charge as the director of music at Burberry. Over to Dave and Nick. Welcome, first of all, Dave. It's good to have this. Good to have this conversation. And we should say as well, full disclosure: when we first met, it's because we were reaching out to look for a leader who could advise people around brands and music. But your story, whole story, is quite interesting. So, is it worth sort of starting at the start? So, and like you end up as this expert on brands and music and how they can work together and all these kind of things. Where do you start out from? I was a singer, songwriter, guitarist, saxophonist. And uh, I thought I was brilliant. And uh, I moved to London uh, to move my career forward and realized maybe there were better people out there. Um, so I'm a failed musician. Um, and I started off um, nearly getting a job working for NXS, the management company. Uh, they were looking for some junior dog's body and I was very willing to do that. Um, I did a few days free work, as did somebody else. And they played me demos of the final In Excess album with Michael Hutchins and asked for my opinion. So I gave my opinion and said, drop the saxophones, that's not cool anymore. And uh, they laughed. Then I said it again on the next song and then repeated that kind of theme. Um, and then they asked me to leave. And I thought that was my career finished. Luckily... The assistant of the NXS manager um, got in touch and recommended me to a little boutique brand agency who worked in predominantly music but entertainment as a whole, just five people in the office, a company called Dayton Row. And they were experts in, in that field because there were very few competitors, really. And they were run by a guy, Adam Dayton, who set up the sponsorship division of KLP um, and had worked very, very successfully uh, there and then set up on his own in partnership with Sony Electronic. And they were looking for someone who could support their work with knowledge around music. And I was a passionate music guy who was willing to talk to anybody extensively about musicians they'd never heard of and never probably wanted to hear of. Um, so I ended up in meetings with like CEOs and marketing directors of companies like Sony Electronics, Coca-Cola, Carlsberg, talking about music while he was then talking to them about strategy and business and ideas. And we did stuff like win a Death Leopard gig in your university if you drink more Coca-Cola than anybody else. Or I booked Paul Young to play at corporate events in Dubai to Sony. I booked Status Quo to play in a field in Germany for the British Army. And lots of interesting things. I was doing a lot of deal making um, off the back of it. And I kind of like, it was my apprenticeship um, in a whole host of different areas around the commercial end of music and how to kind of work with brands and understand what those brands were looking for. And then Claire Craven, a brilliant colleague of mine, and Kathy Craven, a brilliant colleague of mine, recommended me to her sister, Claire, who was working at Cape who were a brand new company at the time, were only about two years old. And they had a music department 
um, they were born out of music and they, they, their, their music kind of specialism became a department within there. Uh, and they were looking for someone to just shake things up a little bit and, and help push them forward. And I had no PR experience and it was a very PR heavy job. Uh, I went in, they were like, we're not sure you're the guy. You sound like an A&R guy. And I was like, well, sure, you know, I, I'm quite interested to, to learn and do something else. It's like, I feel I know all that kind of talent spotting stuff. They were like, yeah, but you've never done PR. Like, well, it's just calling up journalists with uh, with the right story that's relevant for them, right? They were like, well, yeah. And I said, I'll do that then. And uh, Mike Madsen, the CEO who was interviewing me at that point, was saying, no, no. Is this a good hire? Okay, we'll try. And uh, I went in, I looked after PR for XFM, V Festival, and, and Virgin Megastores. Um, and I hated calling journalists. I hated it. I was terrible at it. But I was passionate about science. So that kind of pushed it all through. And we did, we did quite well. Um, I then was approached by some people I've been working with on an XFM magazine project called X-Ray to help them set up a help them commercialize their like advertising partners and and make more money out of it and we so it's the for the guys behind sleaze nation and jockey swap magazine and um, they'd been doing a very corporate um uh direct mail uh magazine uh, for xfm and they were just launching that as a commercial uh magazine in its own right uh, alongside their other stuff, they had regular advertisers like Diesel and Puma and Jose Cuervo. And I came in basically to say to bring those relationships into a deeper uh, relationship with the staff within the agent, within the magazines, and with a sister company, Pictures on Walls, which represented the commercial interests of Banksy and Jamie Hewlett and lots of other brilliant kind of um, artists who were really breaking through at the time. Um, and we, we, we flew for 12 months doing some amazing work and it came to an abrupt end. Sadly, the magazine business, um, went under and they, the founders could run the agency themselves, but I said, we left in a good position and I, it was probably a good sense check time for me to think about, am I just running after one of these agency leadership roles or am I, is there something else? And I realized I hadn't learned the music industry properly yet. I was winging it based on everything I'd managed to do in, in that brief time. So I, through that summer, ended up helping put on a festival on Clapham Common uh, with a, the manager of the Prodigy and a friend who was a music promoter who'd done a lot of the um, um, club nights and stuff. And that went well. We had Maloko headlining. We nearly had Flaming Lips. We, we, I think we sold 13,000 tickets on a 20,000 capacity event and we needed 8,000 uh, sales to break even. We had six weeks or so to turn it around. So we did okay. Uh, and the money behind that was the money behind Coco, uh, which was just um, about to launch in uh, North London. And they were looking for a head of music and... I recommended a guy that who had had applied for it. I recommended a guy, David Phillips, who um, had worked at Cake. But prior to that, he was the guy that had turned Reading Festival from being about Bonnie Tyler and Meatloaf into being Nick Cave and you know all the Nirvana and all the cool stuff. And he'd set up a festival in the late 90s called Tribal Gathering just so he could put craft work 
play um, in the UK and stuff. And he was he's a brilliant guy. And he went in and then he was like, well, do you want to come and take over the marketing? And I was like, yeah, why not? I haven't got a job. Uh, so I went in and did that. Then we were up and running really quickly, really, really successfully built a rapport with the local community, all the local bar staff, which was meant a few later nights than I would have probably were healthy for me. But it was a lot of fun over literally five months. And then I got a call from uh, the head of Metropolis Music, which is a UK concert promoter who um, do everything from the, the kind of newly emerging artists. Uh, at the time, it was Robbie Williams stadium shows and the festival and lots of other stuff. He basically said, uh, my marketing guy of 10 years is leaving. Uh, you're the only other marketing guy I know. Do you want the job? Uh, and I didn't, but I, I, I started and then uh, ended up doing it for a year. Uh, and it actually was a lot of fun. And I learned the live music industry and got to know loads of booking agents while also uh, understanding the brand side. So when it came to the festival and bigger partnership stuff, whenever there were brands involved, I was able to translate that for the, for the promoters as well. Um, then Mute Records, um, the legendary label, the Depeche Mode, Goldcraft and bands like that. We're looking for someone to run the marketing department. And um, I applied, got got an interview with the founder, Daniel Miller, which was just amazing as an experience in itself to listen to him talk about kind of music. And then um, took on the job. And there was a marketing director in there who left a few weeks after I joined. Um, and it was brilliant for me because Mute was owned by EMI Records at the time who were about to be sold. So there was a freeze on any new hires. So it meant instinctively they had to give me the marketing department to run, which meant proper baptism of fire, learning about the record industry at a time pre-Spotify, just pre-Spotify, as downloads were there. You know, it was Pirate Bay and everything. It was a brilliant experience to do. I got gold frapped to number two in the charts. They were at number one until the Friday pre-sale, midweek sales. Uh, and then I had the one failure in my marketing campaign. I didn't realize in the planning that that was Mother's Day weekend. And there was a repackaged Amy Winehouse um, album, which suddenly over that weekend with physical sales in supermarket boosted and, and left above. And Amy's manager, um, Ray, uh, sent me a text uh, later that day on, on the, after the charts had been announced saying, I'm lucky. Um, he had been a former colleague in my previous job at Metropolis. So uh, that was a, a good one. And getting Nick Cave into the top 10 for the first time, along with a brilliant team, Nick led all of it. And there were other marketing people running it um, day to day, but it was brilliant to be part of that. And then um, when EMI was being sold, I just kind of knew it was time to leave when we were in the Odeon Cinema as a, the entire company. And then walked Guy Hans, the founder of EMI, saying, smell that. You think that's popcorn. That's money. We're like, okay. He said, why footballers wear brand names on their T-shirts? Why can't musicians? And we were like, yeah. And then I kind of jumped before everyone else was pushed. I found an opportunity. I, I, funnily enough, went into something much more commercial, which probably suited Guy's vision. But uh, I kind of went in to set up a uh, music specialism mindshare the group m agency and we worked on projects with ford and with unilever and brands like that and 
after a year of getting that up and running, um, the wide the, the the I got pulled into a central role within this um, organization, and it was a joint venture between Universal Music and WPP, sitting within Group M, which made no sense because Group M was the spreadsheet business, and I was doing creative work. Um, it was you know the the clients loved being introduced to music ideas, and then they'd ask about the Metro cover app. Uh, and spend their money there rather on my ideas that they'd enjoyed listening to. Uh, we did a whole bunch of interesting things. And I, I, it culminated with me doing a deal for American Express to sponsor a series of concerts called the Summer Series at Somerset House. And that was where, that was a, a series of concerts I had worked on when I was in my live music days. And I knew that they needed a sponsor. There was a cut price deal to be done. I did the deal. Um, and instead of the pre-sale access that um, American Ex- Express were all about, they were able to get uh, tickets to sold-out shows by the time of the XX and Florence and the Machine and bands like that. So, yeah, so that was good. And Momentum, their agency, came in and activated it. And then they asked me if I would come over there um, to work on Amex. So it felt like the right thing to do at the time. I took the job. Was running a global partnership through ten territories for with Live Nation, um, all around yeah festivals and ticketing, and uh, I I would I love the ambition of Amex. I love what they do. Some brilliant people there, absolutely brilliant people there, but it wasn't the job for me. I was sitting at my desk with spreadsheets, and I I I'm good at the creative stuff. I can do all that stuff, and I can do it well, but. If there's not a balance of creative within there, then it's not for me. So I quit without a job to go to. Uh, and then knowing that I was due a call from Christopher Bailey and his team at Burberry um, through someone I knew was working there and someone I half knew uh, through him also had met me a few times and they knew I worked in music and I bumped into um, one of the guys at a flaming lift gig that summer with the US head of the Momentum American Express business and he was like oh we've been talking about you in the office I was like cool yeah anyway yeah well you know oh this is awkward and uh I eventually got the call and was asked to go in and meet Christopher with no expectations um I thought here's an opportunity to meet someone someone really inspiring and influential in the fashion space I've seen they've been doing a few musical things and I'd seen they tried to do and I felt I could certainly add value with it even if it was a consultancy to kind of give a perspective that might work for them and I sat down with Christopher and Sarah Manley the chief marketing officer and we just clicked straight away Christopher talked passionately about what he was trying to do I inputted and was like this these are the areas I think you can improve number one is the quality of the new music talent that comes into your business. Um, I said, we will work closer with the A&R community managers and find that talent and try and get ahead of the game and ahead of the labels even uh, with some of the artists that we work with while celebrating deeper British music, which was something that, um, like the heritage of British music, which was something that Christopher was also passionate about uh, within the Burberry um, ethos. Um, and then he sent me off to watch one of their fashion shows, which was one of the weirdest experiences I'd ever had. 
walking in, I was think I was wearing like an H&M jacket, uh, feeling a little bit conspicuous and stood stood in there and amongst all these interesting characters and watched the show happen. I even shazammed a couple of the tracks that were playing in recognize just in case I was asked about it afterwards. I was bumped into Christopher or someone else. And suddenly everyone left. I was like, that it was over in seconds, it felt like. I thought, okay, that's a fashion show. Okay, roughly four songs. Has to have impact. It's really dynamic. Um, there's a finale at the end. Okay, now okay, that that makes sense. Went and sat down with Christopher and basically said all of that. And he laughed and said, so there's a job and we'd love to talk to you about it. And I was like, great. And everything we spoke about in that meeting became the job. It was so good. Um, and I sat within the creative media department and for seven years supported um, the work of that team and of Christopher to enable him and the team to dream bigger with music. So we were involved in helping artists break through in the background when we were working with artists if they needed it there were times where we introduced singers to their managers or we introduced them to like a and r people that we knew and stuff and there, there were the moments where we added value to their careers which the benefit for us was that we were building an even better rapport with musicians but also with the industry and also with um building careers for artists we really believed in we wanted to work with in the long term never trying to be the record label uh, which we were approached about a few times and um, i had meetings with one major label and one large independent and um, distribution setup uh who both were pitching the concepts of the burberry records because we were doing so much we were doing burberry acoustic where we were filming emerging talent forming an acoustic version of their music um, really simply shot, beautifully shot. Uh, they might be wearing a coat. Sometimes they weren't even wearing Burberry clothes. Uh, we would never force it. And it was very consistently done by a brilliant uh, cinematographer called Babe Tree. Um, and we did 130 of them. We were really carefully considerate. Cons we were thoughtful, I would say, about the music we were using in all of our content and advertising often going into the studio to record stuff bespoke if it felt right for it. And, you know, there, were, there was one moment where we needed a singer for a fragrance campaign. We, we wanted us to find a singer to record a new version by Puts a Spell on You. We'd launched My Burberry with uh, a Joss Stone and Jeff Beck, Jeff Beck version of the song, which had worked well the first iteration. But Christopher was changing the model um, and was changing the feel of it but liked the idea of the same song as consistency in the campaign. Uh, so we we thought about who could sing it, and the top two artists on my on my list were Leanne Lahabas and Duffy. And this is probably 2015, and Duffy hadn't done much um, in about four or five years at that point. She kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. And Chris was like, "You think she'd do it?" I was like, I "Don't know. Let's ask." You know, we we'd done so much at that point of recording stuff bespoke we'd started to have live music and our fashion shows the soundtrack we were doing all sorts of stuff that i then dug around found out that she had um a lawyer so i got hold of the lawyer who put me in touch with her then new manager within about two weeks the manager wasn't her manager anymore but the lawyer was really communicative and helpful and really honest about 
that she, you know, she wanted to be comfortable with any collaboration and needed to make sure it was perfect. And I was able to, he, he had a really good head on his shoulders and was really able to understand what I was looking for creatively. And I wanted Bernard Butler, her original producer, to team back up with her because he knows that sound. The, the, the Nina Simone version of I Put a Spell on You is you wouldn't want any other producer in the room apart from Bernard Butler. So we managed to get them together. They, they spent time in a room beforehand and then they, um, we got them in the studio together and recorded this beautiful version. And it's such a pleasure to spend the afternoon with Duffy and hearing her sing, but also hear her just talk passionately as a human being about everything. And my role was often to humanize the experience for all parties. So make sure she felt comfortable in collaborating with Burberry as much as in performing in the most beautiful way that she did. It was very important that you really grasped it. There's something I wanted to draw around with that story because it's interesting in terms of you're both, I mean, it's still a big brand, Burberry, so there's, there's a whole kind of institutional thing that comes with it. You've got some really big creative talents, but also therefore egos involved in the whole story. I mean, how conscious are you of, of managing that or are you not? Is it just a kind of intuitive processor on how you sort of create the space for people? It depends on the characters. It's like I have to be a bit of a chameleon. I put my arm around the shoulder as much as is needed and I kind of introduce, I, I, I need to make sure that we get the best performance or recording or moment out of the talent who's working with us. So I try to bear the heavy weight of the corporation on my shoulders. And I'm representing, especially with a brand like Burberry, especially, and in that era, the artistic approach of it and helping them understand the deeper story of the brand and what we've done previously and why and finding mutual connections and affinities and stuff as well. And it's like when uh, Benjamin Clementine, who's an amazing singer-songwriter, uh, we had him... He did loads with us in the end, but right at the beginning when we approached him asking him two weeks before a fashion show when I played his music to Christopher, Christopher was like, we weren't, we weren't actually going to have a live performance for that show. And Christopher was something like, would he play live? I was like, let's ask. And we were immediately declined because he was like, why would Burberry want my music in a fashion show? Why would my music sit in a fashion show? What would you, you know, this doesn't represent me. And it took a lot of persuasion in partnership with the management and to get him to even walk into the room uh, for the rehearsal. And when he did, I knew that we had to have everything perfectly set up. And in partnership with the management and its tour manager and its sound guy, we made sure that everything, when he walked in, the stool was in the perfect position. It was the piano he loved the most, the piano in the right position on the stage. The sound was perfectly created for him so he could immediately feel comfortable at the piano while all this chaos was happening around him and we cleared the room of all the people who were in there hammering nails into a wall and all sorts of other stuff and funny thing about Burberry fashion shows there was always someone hoovering somewhere throughout the whole build-up of always um, <laughs> it's good for your whole sound environment thing up. then spending time with him and there was a mixture of being a joker I could see his sense of humor and I thought I He's war he needs to warm to me. He needs to meet Christopher and see what a warm guy Christopher is. And then he needs me to just fill in the gap. 
and help and listen to him and answer any concerns he has and, and kind of just be there with him through the whole experience. And that's something that I've, I've done numerous times with numerous artists in these situations. And you end up getting so much out of it by committing and investing that time and energy in the person while they're there and while they're engaged with you. You walk away with someone who will who will do more for you, which is brilliant. Who, when asked, will tell a very good story about their um, time working with that brand um, and who actually starts to understand what the brand is about. I mean, next time you work with them, it's even better and what they deliver is even more on point. So yeah, it's like, it's, it's, I guess it's about humanizing. Humanizing, but it's interesting just quickly there that you think, so you think it was important actually that the, the artist really understood what the brand was about. Cause I guess some people might just think actually it's kind of creating a space where you can kind of collaborate without really necessarily involving them too much in the commercial side, which branding speaks into, but it sounds like you think actually, no, it's much more genuinely you had to actually get leading artists to, to care about this thing. It depends on the brand. With Burberry, we were doing so much culturally and creatively and artistically that we had some great, we had a really great story to tell. Um, so it made sense. There'd be, there might be other clients that I work with nowadays who I might avoid that um, and focus on the moment and the thing that you're doing with them. And there were other moments further down the line where Benjamin felt comfortable enough to question why we were doing stuff with him there was a fragrance commercial which he was like he saw the commercial and was just like oh, why my music why why would you want this i'm not i don't i don't understand and he, he needed to understand the why from our side and from the director's point of view and from christopher's that i was able to provide for him and like within that same day he got got back into it and i gave him time to be on his own with the piano while he was just filtering it through his mind and we didn't rush him and we we ended up with a great recording and he was really proud of the campaign and did loads of st other stuff in and around it and again it's just like being being ready for the fragility of some musician not that he's a fragile guy in 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 you know in the main he's a very strong character um and it, it was just yeah it was just so many times like that where you just have to read the situation and use a mix of honesty and probably a few of the PR skills that I learned back in my cake days, how to tell a story, you know, um, in order to draw draw them in. You know, even when I, when I, when Christopher turned to me one day and said, and my head in my form for a show, because Alison was his favorite artist when he was a teenager. And I said, we can ask. And we, you know, I knew that I had to ask in a different way with someone like Alison to how I was asking an emerging talent who their management immediately understood the exposure opportunity, along with being paid, the credibility of the association and everything else, and also, had also seen everything we were doing. We couldn't assume that Alison and her team had seen anything that we were doing, and we needed to find a way. So you tell the story accordingly to try to warm them into the project immediately without throwing money in the air because fashion brands notoriously pay okay but not big bucks that you might get from a an amex or someone you know one of the things that's interesting is you tell your story i know we haven't quite got to the modern <laughs> day yet but there's, there's a there's an it's interesting a story to, um, a point here. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's an interesting one but as you go through the steps it's interesting because you're constantly talking about 
things being in an apprenticeship, but they're not formally, they're a job. The other people might look at them just as a job. Um, and you're constantly learning and kind of being a student to things. I mean, is that something that you are conscious of or is it something that's kind of in your your kind of DNA, if you like, that kind of openness to opportunity, but also your willingness to learn what you need to do in order to make it make a success of that of that moment yeah i think i think it's just a little bit of simplicity to in approach is number one a belief just from the experiences i've had that anything is possible the kind of you know i'm i'm it's very funny i have these very clear two sides to how i work one is that anything is possible creative let's make it all happen and then the very clear brand guardian side of no, actually, we shouldn't do that. And why would we do that? Actually, no, I really don't like that that person's getting involved here. And we need to distance them from this project in order that it can be the most creative or whatever. So it's it's funny. I've got the two different sides in there. Um, but I think it is, majority of it is an anything is possible kind of mentality. Um, if my client or colleagues have suggested things are should be done a certain way, then I try to make it happen that way and try to follow that kind of remit and roots as well. So it's I, I'm a bit of I, I think being a bit of a chameleon helps because I do sit in the middle of so many different characters, personalities, and like you said, egos and everything else, including my own, my own multiple personalities. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. Yeah, but it's interesting, for instance, I think, if there might be designers listening to this, or certainly lots of designers that I speak to on the mentoring side or when we're kind of doing projects. Um, and they would recognize some of the way you talk about the creative process. But for instance, when they talk about your openness to deal-making, that would be the complete anathema to lots of their background. And I'm interested whether you think that's partly the musician background, because you do kind of do a lot of things as a yeah, musician. Yeah, I kind of learned the industry by accident just by trying to promote myself. And then off the back of it, I think it's also my first job was very much, we were doing commercial deals with people right from the start. And then at Cape, there was there were there was so much going on at that time. At the time when Cape did the first, were responsible for the the first commercial beer deal for Glastonbury Festival, whereas it had always been this workers' beer company, and Budweiser were the first commercial beer, and Cape were very were brilliant. Mike Matson particularly at creating this partnership, um, focused around the recycling messaging, in order that. Um, they could get the client's beer on sale at this amazing event, you know. And it's like, so by working with those kind of characters, I was I was learning the commercial side alongside creative. And I guess it stuck with me. And I've, you know, whenever I jump into a new opportunity, it's like my, my approach is always, well, what do you want? Like, well, what we need is, is this. I'm like, yeah, cool. But what do you want? And then I'm kind of like, well, I like that this is either going to be a very commercial role and I'll help them do it and that's fine. Or it's going to be a very creative role. Like I helped, um, I got approached by a record label um, end of last year 
where they had an artist who'd been approached by Chanel to perform in a, a fashion show. And they were like, what do we charge? What do we do? How do we approach this? And I was like, let me talk to the music supervisor. I know what challenges he's facing. I can talk to him and we'll, I can kind of send, work it out based on my experience and expertise. And then I'll come back to you and then we'll, we'll work it all out. So I was able to very quickly make it, I made it easy for Michelle Gober, the um, music supervisor. And I made it easy for NTS, who were the record label, for their artists to perform. And I got them a lot more money than they would have expected. I got the basically stretched the deal from what um, was on offer from the brand. But I had a good sense of what the budget would look like. And then I was able to, when they asked for other usage rights and stuff, I knew which moments I could ask for more money to help my client um, benefit from it. And how the fee could be structured in order to benefit the artist and the record label equally. Um, everyone would walk away happy and Chanel would get the performance they wanted um, without any complications or frustration. And, and it's interesting as well, because I think in terms of people listening to this as well, it's easy to sort of see you talking about the creative leadership of guiding or creating the environment to enable an artist to do great work in a, in a, in a campaign. And on the flip side, this kind of much more commercial drawing out a deal and things and to see them as entirely like different parts of your brain, which it could be. I don't know, I wonder how you see it. The other side, actually, the other side of what you're actually saying is in each case, you're doing it in quite a human kind of relational kind of way. So do, 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 do you kind of very consciously step into this is now me being a commercial person, this is me being a creative person, or do you feel like they're from the same They're from well? the same, same place and they always interact and when a creative people person, when a creative person doesn't think that they'll make, they, they will be in amongst what they're doing. I just do it in more of a, a focus, aware way, I guess. Um, and when a commercial people person says to me, "I'm not creative," it's kind of like when you look at what they're doing, it's like you're being really creative in your deal making, for example. And I do that as well. It's like I'm always looking around the thing that's happening, think, "What? How can we actually make it?" like oh there's a problem with the deal it's not black and white it's like i'm looking at all the gray and multicolored areas around it to see how to construct it better yeah okay i just want to pick up on this on this topic as well about the creative and the commercial because it's really interesting you are studying in your kind of in your career history partly because you've been in uh some of i mean organizations like amex which are typically cold and commercial if you like and it seems seen from the outside and then the fashion industry, which in some ways is opposite, but it, but it's interesting, I guess, in terms of leaders you've you've worked to ultimately the kind of guy hands Christopher Bailey thing. Now the, the reason I want to call that out is that the Christopher Bailey story is an incredible creative story, but also an incredible commercial story. There's a business school case study you could have there. Um, I mean, do you feel it's interesting? I, I guess did you you feel you learned different things from both of them? Do you or do you feel like there were just misunderstandings going on in terms of what was going on in Citizens? I've learned from every leader that I've worked with, and I've actually been very lucky to have some brilliant, brilliant people to kind of unofficially be mentored by. And Christopher is is very easy to work with. Um, he was very aware, but I was tuned in to what he was looking for, so I could feed in stuff he needed, and he would direct me quite clearly. Sometimes in a very weird, vague way, but it, was, it would be clear to me based on our working relationship of what he was looking for. So I could then deliver 
something either that equaled or went above his expectation. And if I look at some of the more commercial leaders that I worked with, you know, Nick Beekston, who was Group M CEO in the UK when I was doing their joint venture with Universal. And he was actually, I learned a lot about the more corporate commercial side of business from him. Um, sitting down with him every three months where essentially he'd be going, why, why are we funding this business? We weren't successful. We were doing okay. You know, when you're, when you're in a WPP business, you need to be making an absolute killing. We did okay. We weren't doing WPP levels of success. So he'd be like, I don't know. I just like something about what you're telling me. And it's good. We can be creative for our clients in ways that they wouldn't expect. And it kind of like, I guess he was probably learning a little bit from us at the time, but I was totally learning from him and soaking it up. And if I go back to Mike Matheson at Cake in the early stages of my career and Mark Whelan, who was the creative director and Ben Jones and those other leaders, it's like the way they approach things quite gung-ho, but considered and learning how to stand in a room and present to people of every seniority and be confident because you're there as the expert. And I feel that stuck with me throughout. The only time, ironically, that I haven't felt like a music expert is when I've been in the music industry itself, which was one of the reasons for jumping kind of out of it again, because I like being that specialist. I'm good at it. Um, I became a marketing specialist. And you didn't, some people might have felt in the roles you've been in isolated because you're the only one in the room with the music expertise. Sometimes, sometimes here and there, but like at Burberry, after a couple of years, I got this brilliant colleague, Cleo, um, who was shoulder to shoulder with me on everything. She was brilliant to work with. And I go back to the the WPP joint venture. There was a, a young guy, Jamie Williams, who was there. It was shoulder to shoulder with me on everything else as well. But go back to Kate, there was a young guy, Zach Schwartz, who was there with me on everything. And it's like, it's having those key people really drives you forward. And um, we wouldn't have had half the success at Burberry without Cleo. Um, and then now working in silo for the last five years, it's back to just being me. Um, so I've had numerous times in my career when it was just me, but then a lot of good support along the way, whether it's a senior level or a, a kind of like, you know, team member level. And then now it's kind of like, I'm the guy who goes in and I'm either plugged into an existing framework or I'm on my own doing it. And I do the intern stuff as much as I do the, the C level kind of stuff as well. And that's okay. Because, you know, I know my specialism is, it's a luxury. It's a nice to have. And I enjoy being really hands-on with, you know, I think that's just one of my own quirks. It's like everyone wants to get senior, senior, senior. And that's great, but I hate letting go of the work. And it's, it's what I get up for. That's a really interesting thing. For lots of people that are actually makers, whether you sort of start as a musician or in some other creative discipline, it's... Uh... I think it's both a really interesting thing on the basis of there's so much in the way people think about careers that makes people think they have to start becoming more of a manager somehow. But also on the flip side, the way everything's moved technologically, it's a kind of daft assumption that you have to. Actually, the thing is now to make incredible things and then see what that see what that turns into. 
Interesting. I, I, I want to just pick up quickly because we've talked so much about your story coming through. One of the reasons we reached out to you to talk about you joining the label is we kind of see a lot of brands at the moment they are in two spaces. So they're either ending up doing quite a lot around culture and music in different spaces and not really having thought it through properly. Or sometimes they're actually brands that should be doing a lot more, have ended up doing a lot of things just ad hoc for individual campaigns and have got themselves maybe not necessarily into a mess, but into a place where they aren't taking full advantage of, of, of what they do. What are some of the points you'd have in mind if you are maybe a marketing director, maybe a chief exec somewhere, um, and you're starting to think, how do I frame this music thing? How do I, how do I think about this? There's so many different ways to approach it, and it's all unique to each individual brand that you're talking to. Um, and where they are in their journey at the time and what else they're doing creatively. And I often talk about, you know, I'm going in to talk about music and people think I'm going to give them the big idea. And often I'm giving them the small idea. I'm telling them just be more thoughtful with your brand sound. Actually think about what the music is from your stores to your content, to your advertising, to your events, and how do they connect? You know, are there genres that feel right for you? Is there an area of the world? Is it, do you need a global point of view on music or do you need a very regional, local uh, view on music? How are you curating it? Uh, why are you curating it that way? Is, does that work for you? Is there a better way that we could look at together? Do we want to create a musical palette in the same way that you've created a visual palette for your brand identity? You know, it's kind of like, do you, who's choosing the music for your advertising? Is it just whoever happens to be there with the director at the time? Or is it that somebody has a cohesive overview of it that is helping join the dots and maybe add extra value or bring more of the brand by thinking about it regularly and being more immersed in the sound of your brand do you need a sonic identity to go a sonic logo to go with your visual logo okay you're a bank maybe you do oh you're a pharmaceutical company probably not but you might want to do one anyway to be a bit cooler or whatever and it's kind of like are you a you know chocolate bar maybe you don't need one but maybe you want a consistency in kind of what kind of pop music or what Motown sound you might you should be going to you know do you want to make people feel good and take that Motown soul kind of approach you know is it about femininity and therefore there's lots of female musicians that you should be thinking about working within that you know there's so many different ways of doing it or maybe you should put on a music festival maybe it is a big idea maybe it is that you know the virgin was it who was it virgin media doing the thing with rudimental doing a gig in the sky on a plane or whatever that hate did that um it's like maybe it is it's like that's a very throwaway idea but if you're doing that one do another one what's the next one it's such an, it's such an interesting time just now because it's both there's this kind of open there's a kind of realization of a lot of brands of what it can start to do for them also i think so much of marketing and brand culture is so visual Everyone's very used to talking through the visuals of a brand. People don't even necessarily have the language for talking about the sound sound of a brand. I find it really useful even just getting people to talk about things just to suggest, okay, that's the new brand identity. What if it was a making an ad, what would the soundtrack be? Not because it's a full music strategy, it's because it's like people have a license around sound just now. They don't have for other things. But it's also with an advert ad campaign, sometimes you've got people I I got approached recently by a luxury brand who I've overseen the music supervision for and they were very clear about the sound they wanted so 
I gave them a whole bunch of things in that in that vein, but I gave them a couple of um, curveballs, which I often like to do, just to check and sense check. And they went for a curveball, and that's that often happens too, because someone somewhere has in our within our direction has gone. Maybe it needs this, and now I look at that and I often go, "That's the sound that everyone's using at the moment. That they're not using that. That can be a bit more you. What do you think?" And then they go with that because they're going, actually, maybe that is better for this campaign or where we are as a brand or whatever. And that's me selling myself short in that moment because I want them to pay me more money to the bigger and at peace with it. But in reality, the opportunity isn't there to do that with that brand at the moment. But the opportunity is those little thoughtful moments to help them sound better. I am really excited to start making some of this, uh, some of this happen. I've got some things in my mind. I've got a few final questions just to ask you, just to get to know you a little bit better. For people who could be working with you in those things, or maybe just just to know a little bit more about you. So uh, they're all quite rapid fire. Uh, the first one is, what makes a good travel companion? Oi, oi, oi. Um, my phone. Oh, my interesting. Phone. My phone is my perfect travel companion. I At home, I'm surrounded by three children running around and chaos and everything. And I like to escape into my own thoughts. And my phone does help me do that, whether it's through music, watching a documentary or some kind of thing, escapism, or it's discovering stuff that I haven't had time to research and kind of like searching through stuff while I'm at the airport, just sitting around download some things to watch while I'm on the plane that aren't curated by whichever um, airline I'm flying with. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like, and it's very personal then. And it, yeah. Nice. And then like related one, where do you go when you procrastinate? Into my own thoughts deeply. And I, 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 I fix things through music. It's kind of like I've refocused myself through going back to old playlists and old projects as well. So when it's in a work environment, when I'm when I'm procrastinating, I, I go back to old projects that inspire me, you know, and remind me of what kind of things were, and go back to the that work because it was a straightforward, simple thing in my head, or how I kind of um, made sense of it in order to deliver it. Uh, and when it's outside of kind of a work environment, it's it's music again, and it's going back to those tried and tested artists and tr- tried and trusted like Nick Cave and Bon Iver and stuff like that. Just, are there any artists that you love that you'd never want to work with? Would they think it would ruin it for you? Uh, no, actually. No. Okay, you no, always you always want to work with everyone. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I thought that might be the answer. I just wanted to check. Now, the next one, the answer could be no, but has anyone ever given you a great piece of advice? Lots of it, but I haven't listened to any of it. Um, it's like people saying, go and do something different because you've done this now. And especially now, because every conversation I have is different, um, which is kind of cool. You know, it's it's really inspiring to get under the skin of so many different businesses. But um, yeah, it's it's. I, I wouldn't say there's anything I could share um, usefully. It's just mainly I don't listen to the good advice. But and then the last one is we ask everybody this question. Uh, on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? I probably think five, but probably eight or nine, maybe maybe ten. I'm definitely. I think people definitely see me as weirder than I do. Some would, some would probably say one that I'm really boring because I can be kind of like very much in the background. So 
back to the chameleon answer. Yeah, one to all of them. One. All of the above. Yeah, 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 yes. The answer is yes. I'm just going to one to ten. How yeah. do I? Yes. <laughs> really good. Thanks so much for that. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.